This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today because we get to talk to the author of a really interesting book that takes a whole bunch of history and mixes it together in ways that cause us to think about new things um, and does it through making it interesting to read through fiction. Uh, the book is titled Wages of Sin. It has just come out in early 2024. And the author, Dr. Harry Turtledove, um, is with us to tell us all about this book without giving anything else about the plot away. Harry, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me here. Could you start us off, please, by introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book? Ah. Uh... I am a Byzantine historian by training. I am a science fiction writer by trade. And when you are a science fiction writer who is trained as a historian, you tend, or at least I tend, to write a lot of alternative history. Uh, It's basically the same technique that any science fiction writer does except applied at a different point in the timeline you might say uh, most science fiction changes something in the present or in the near future and then looks at the consequences of the change in the more distant future i have changed something in the more distant past and i'm looking at the consequences of that change in the uh more recent past. What continues to be, as you said, you've written many alternative histories of which this is the latest. Why do you keep writing them? What's compelling to you about writing this kind of book? Well, I think that alternate history is a way to look at the world we live in through a funhouse mirror that you can't get in any other kind of writing. Because basically all fiction is about the world you live in it's not about the world you create and alternate history just lets you ask some questions and pose some answers or some possibilities that you really can't do without it and the other thing uh as 
colleague of mine who also does this stuff said it's you know what what when you're writing it sometimes it's the most fun you can have with your clothes on you know <laughs> all right so then that's why you write these kinds of books i think there is a lot to explore with them tell us a bit about this book where and when do you focus on and how did you decide that this was going to be the focus for this particular one well this is a book set in a universe where HIV, instead of waiting till the late 20th century, got loose in the world in the early 16th century. And the problem with turning HIV loose in the world in the early 16th century is that there's nothing you can do about it. If you catch it, you're going to die slowly, painfully, lingeringly. And so it will take a while as the virus spreads and as realization about what it is spreads. It will take a while, but you there will be social changes in the world to try to minimize the chance of it spreading from one person to another. And I take a look at what those changes might be and what they do to the world and what they do to the people who are living in this miserable world. How do you research a book like this? I guess alternative history in general, but particularly this book. Um, this one is relatively easy because the change takes place a long way back from the time that I'm writing about. And I can, you know, I don't really have to talk about all of the different things that have happened to lead to the world that I show in the bulk of the book. I just have to show that world without the expository lumps, I hope. Um, you know, I mean, HIV, I'm old enough, uh, as my bald head and white mustache will tell you, to remember the AIDS pandemic in the 1980s and, you know, uh, one of the people I, you know, who went to grad school with me uh, died in 1986 at the age of 41, poor guy, you know, before anybody could do anything about it. And so I have that to go on. I have the example of what AIDS did in Africa, where, you know, where it's primarily, a, you know, a disease spread by heterosexual transmission rather than, rather than gay transmission. And I think that would be very likely in an imperfectly hygienic world, you know, for several centuries ahead of ours. Um, and I put that together and I put together the kinds of things that you do to keep the sexes apart and I wrote a story. To what extent is this sort of research process um, something that kind of your other alternative histories were a similar combination of things? Or is this a process that is maybe different now than it was earlier in your career or different for each book? I think it's really different for each book because it depends on what you're doing. It depends on how much you already know about the period. I mean, if I write Byzantine alternate history, I don't have to do a lot of intensive research because I, you know, I already have the background. When I wrote a book about the American Civil War, I was doing intensive research for a year before that, 
because I didn't know as much as I needed to know. I knew I didn't know as much as I needed to know. And I also knew that if I screwed it up, there would be people who knew more than I did who would tell me about it in loud, piercing voices. <laughs> you know, uh, back in those days, because it was before the internet was widespread, I used to call those getting the eight-point, single-space, 10-page letters that start out by apologizing for how brief they are. These days, they just fry you on Twitter, but, uh, you know, the phenomenon is, is related. Wow. I can only imagine receiving such a thing. Um, perhaps oh, the brevity it, of Twitter is an improvement. It happens. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I've written those letters, you know. I'm... <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, Given what you've told us about kind of the premise of this book and the process of putting it together, um, can you tell us a bit about kind of the world within the book? Um, you call the HIV plague the wasting, which I think is a really evocative turn of phrase. In your alternative history, then, how has this impacted by the time we get to kind of the main bit of the book? What what does the society, the alternative universe look like compared to ours in terms of religion, economics, social interactions? It's, for one thing, it's backward. I mean, the book is set in most of, or almost all of the book is set in the early 1850s, but they aren't our early 1850s. They're the 1850s that have seen a lot of death in the previous three and a half centuries. They are less technically advanced. They're probably about where we were maybe in the 1720s, somewhere just before the invention of the first primitive steam engine. You know, there are none, there are none yet. Socially, they're also pretty backward uh, because one of the ways that you go about keeping the sexes apart the easy way especially if you're a, a male in a patriarchal society is to slam the women behind closed doors and keep them there as much as you possibly can and not to let them wear anything that shows more than their eyes and their hands when they have to go out in public and that's the kind of world they're living in and to the women all hate it and the men have no idea that the women all hate it because you know if you if you tell somebody something like that he's probably going to smack you and yet the telling men about this is one of the strands of the book was that mm -hmm. kind of an important how, how did that piece of it develop well i i i have two two main characters who are who are engaged to be married as the as the book opens and the girl is I don't know, smarter than the man but certainly more annoyed about being confined and ab annoyed about the way the world works than, than than her potential spouse is and is more and more fed up and she's also you know wants to be a writer and she writes about a world where what would it be like if the sexes could possibly be equal, and she actually sells it, <laughs> you know, and uh, one of the things that happens, and one of the things that they have to deal with is that he goes off to London to London to study law. And London, even in this world, is a big city, and it has big city temptations, and he yields to one. And this is a very dangerous thing to do when you never know what's going to happen a year afterwards or 
five years afterwards. And you, you know, when she finds out about it, she has to decide if she still wants to have anything to do with him and he, you know, and what she's going to do about that, whether the marriage should go forward. And that's part of the tension in the book. I, w- I won't ask you to give away the details um, for any listeners who want to avoid more spoilers than that. Um, <laughs> but if I could ask you maybe to talk about uh, sort of not parallel plot line, but another aspect of it is the relationship between the main female character and her father. Um, mm-hmm. And this idea of talking about what it's like to be a woman in this time period, some of which comes out through, as you mentioned, the book that she writes. Um, could you maybe talk a little bit about this kind of father-daughter aspect? Well, uh, I have three daughters, you know, three grown daughters now. I mean, I, you know, I know, you know, I'm, I'm writing some of what I know, and one of them takes after me a, a very great deal, you know. I'm, I'm a big guy. I'm, I, you know, I am, I am, I am, a, I am six feet six. I am sardonic i am left-handed my daughter is six feet one sardonic left-handed i have a doctorate in byzantine history and am not using it she has a doctorate in late antique history and is not using it (laughs) you know anyone would think she was my kid or something (laughs) uh and so i suspect that some of that came out in the book (laughs) You know, yep. what 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 is allowed to write what one knows, although I'm writing from the daughter's point of view rather than the father's. Mm. In 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 the book, he is a doctor who is endlessly frustrated with how little he can do about things like the wasting or much of anything else. Mm. In the process um of writing from the different areas kind of researching this piece this part from your personal experience the writing the father-daughter relationship perhaps that is familiar to you was there anything that was especially surprising or intriguing that you came across in putting together the research and content of this book even if it's something that ended up not being in the final version totally intriguing i think one of the things that i had fun playing with uh there is a mock trial in which Peter Drinkwater, the, the the male lead, comes off particularly well. And the case that I based it on actually happened and was the subject of a novel called I Libertine that Theodore Sturgeon wrote under a pen name back in the 1950s, wrote in about three days, as a matter of fact, uh, because it was due. Actually, he didn't quite write all of it. He wrote for three days straight, uh, fueled, I think, by benzodrine and endless caffeine, because that was his method. And he finally just fell asleep. And Betty Ballantine, the editor who was buying the book, wrote the last chapter. So it is said, anyway. And you know, I I used the, I I used that case, and, and it was you know a few people may notice. <laughs> I have to say, I didn't realize that link reading it, but even without knowing that, it's still a very captivating and sort of entertaining case to have. Um, yeah, was, you know, I thought, oh, I can throw that in, and that'll be fun. <laughs> yeah, no, I can definitely see why you did that. Um, 
what one other thing I wanted to ask about um, the title Wages of Sin. Mm -hmm. Why this title? Because the complete phrase is the wages of sin is death. And this is a world where if you screw around, you are literally risking your life. Mm. Is that when do you come up with the title? Is it at the beginning, at the end? How does that work? It varies wildly. And sometimes the titles that end up on a book are not yours, but are those that your kindly editor proposes because they don't like yours. <laughs> These things also happen. <laughs> what about this one? No, this one's mine. And when did it come up in the process? I think this one came up pretty fast. Okay. Because it, se it, you know, it seems to fit with what's going on in the world that I created. Hmm. When readers engage with the world, obviously the book has only recently come out. So hopefully mm -hmm. you haven't received 10 page letters yet. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. Great. People, you know, people on my Twitter feed seem to like it pretty well. Of course, the people who come to my Twitter feed are the, a lot of them are the people who liked me. Before. Like it. Exactly. Yeah. So what are you hoping readers take from this book? Uh, look, the first thing that you have to do is make them is keep them interested enough to make them want to keep turning pages till they get to the end. Without that, all else fails. There is no, you know, if you, if you can't do that, you lose. So for, first of all, I hope that they'll be entertained for a couple of hours. And after that, you know, if you think a little bit about the way the world is, about the way particular parts of the world are these days, you know, that's a good thing to do. And if you don't, if you just want to read it as a story, that's that's in the rules. You can do that. Fair enough. Um, is there anything else you want readers to know at this point before, maybe assuming that listeners haven't read it yet? Maybe there are some who have read it by now, but for any listeners who haven't yet read the book, is there anything else you want them to know going into it? That I've been doing this for a long time, and I think this one turned out yeah, I think this is one of my better ones, you know. I, I, you know, what makes you say that? I, I think I got into the characters' heads more deeply than sometimes happens. I don't know how or why, but uh, and and the the situation resonated. The uh, oppression resonated. Mm. Maybe because when I was writing it, but. Uh, <sighs> joys of politics in the United States. Well. Mm. Yeah, joys. I always, I do always ask the same final question, um, and I'd like to kind of keep my streak going, but it always feels odd to ask it when the book has just come out. So bear with me. Okay. The book being released out into the world for people to read means that it's no longer obviously on your desk. Is there anything you're starting to think about as a next project, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on an alternative history? Oh yeah, you have to. I mean, if 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 you write for a living, you had better have ideas stacked up because otherwise you're going to starve. <laughs> There's nothing complicated about this at all. All right. You know, you what have... might then be next? Well, let's see. I have a story collection coming out in October. Uh, it's called Other People's Playgrounds. This is stories that I wrote in worlds that I didn't create. 
you know, which is which is something that you get to do. Every, you know, I've got a story set in Asimov's Foundations universe and in Philip Jose Farber's Riverworld universe. And also, I'm very pleased to say in Sprague de Camp's Less Darkness Fall universe, mm-hmm. which is of particular importance to me, because if I hadn't found Less Darkness Fall in a secondhand bookstore when I was... 14, 15, something like that, I would not be a Byzantine historian now, and my entire life would be different. Hmm. I've got a couple of fantasy novels coming out. Uh, One of them I don't have a pub date for. The other one is going to be out in early 2025. One of them is in a fantasy world modeled after Paris under nazi occupation in 1943-44 and the other one is a um, noirish urban fantasy set in post-war los angeles corrupt Mm. cops vampires all that good stuff (laughs) all right well it sounds like the fun will just keep coming then Um, (laughs) well it definitely sounds like there are plans for it Uh, so listeners can read now wages of sin um, written by Dr. Harry Turtledove. Um, and there's sounds like even more cool stuff after that to come. So Harry, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with thank us on the you podcast. Thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate it.